Joining me on the line now from San Diego is Jonathan Anomaly, who is a professor of philosophy in the PPE program at the University of Pennsylvania and also a friend. Johnny's just co-authored a paper titled, Is Liberalism Sustainable? Uh, and this paper essentially focuses on two negative consequences of liberalism that threaten its stability and longevity. Those are declining social trust and sub-replacement fertility, i.e. they're not pumping out enough kids. Johnny, good to see you again. Great to see you, Nick. Maybe you could start by giving um, just a bit of a rough abstract of this paper, and then we can go through some of the key arguments and topics. Yeah, sure. I'll just go through a couple of highlights and then also probably define liberalism. It's sure. a, a deeply ambiguous word and it's, it's, it's frequently misused. Yeah, so one of the things that we wanted to argue here, and this is written with a friend of mine named Felipe Faria, a philosopher in Portugal, is we wanted to explore not just the benefits of liberalism, which I think are clear. They've led to an explosion of innovation, scientific innovation, wealth, and of course, by definition, liberty. But we wanted to see whether or not these kinds of institutions can be sustained in the long run. So do they tend to produce norms? Do they tend to produce values and so on, which are actually self-undermining in the long run? And we argue that they do. So we can go through some of the explanations there, but that's the thesis. It's a bit of a bummer. We, we, we both like living in liberal societies. It's fun. You know, there's, there's a lot to do, but we think that there is a bit of cultural rot happening right now. And the cultural rot, vaguely speaking, tended to result in a suppression of fertility and an increase in liberty at the expense of things like meaning, community, and so on. So you see this um, decline in reproduction as something that is going to be uh, problematic within the, uh, you know, within the next generation, two generations? Yeah, it's been on its way down for well over 100 years in the West. And in fact, people nearly 100 years ago in the Weimar Republic in Germany and in England were writing books, writing papers saying, look, as people move to cities, as females become more empowered, educated and so on, and especially when the birth control pill happened, which was a bit later, but every one of these innovations led to a decline in fertility. And in specifically not across the board, right? So women who had less education had more children. Same for men. Um, women who lived in rural environments who are farmers and so on tended to have more children. Mm -hmm. But overall, what we saw were in Western societies a decline in fertility for the last 150 years. But the decline was massively accelerated by the elite, by those who had more education and those who worked in cities. And we could talk about some of the reasons why. Yeah, well, maybe we'll start with, um, with with cities and on the back of that immigration, I think what's Im interesting is that, you know, as you write, there's this emerging consensus now amongst liberals, especially in the Democratic Party, that the, f the freedom of movement, largely the right to just cross borders un in an unfettered manner, um, is no longer an issue of national defence. It it's a moral right. Yeah, that's right. And let me actually define liberalism really briefly and say why we think actually in a way this is this is just a natural extension of the core commitments of liberalism. So 
you know, we could think about the original thinkers, people like John Locke, you know, David Hume, others who would have been at the core of the, the ideas of liberalism, right? The idea of a commitment to individual liberty and natural rights and so on. But the main commitments that all liberals have in the West anyway, where, which is where liberalism was invented, is a commitment to freedom, to equality, that is the moral equality and the legal equality under the law of citizens, and to a kind of neutrality of the state with respect to a comprehensive conception of the good. Right, so when we think about Europe in the Middle Ages, um, it was characterized by you know religious strife and so on. Actually, there's a lot of religious harmony. I don't want to overemphasize the strife, but you start to get fissures in the church. You start to get different theories of the nature of government and where our obligations and our rights come from. And so, what liberalism really was is an attempt to say, look, we're each going to get to decide for our own. It's not going to be the king. It's not going to be the clergy. And it's not going to be the nobility that decides for us. And so there's this radical sense of, look, I don't have to justify to the state why I should be free. Rather, the state has to justify to me or the church or any other hierarchical organization. They um, have to justify to me why, you know, why I shouldn't be free. Mm. So in other words, we, we sort of, with liberalism, we convert the traditional way of living where there's a natural hierarchy, we're born into it and so on, there's structure. And we say, no, 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 no we get to design our lives and we get to decide what we'll do with our lives. And not just a rejection of, of church, but a rejection of uh, God in, in so much then as liberalism essentially has no kind of um, uh, thorough ontology or ontological argument, right? So liberalism as opposed to religion doesn't have um, a mutable moral law. Uh, yeah. And I think this creates a massive problem because then the interpretation of, of good will always be at the discretion of the most powerful or maybe the most deviant interpreter. Right. And by definition, a liberal political order can't impose a comprehensive conception of the good on its people. And so whatever happens to arise and attract the most followers, that that's what that's what people will believe. And so if it's whether it's Hollywood or whether it's some particular religious organization or, or anything else, you know, they, they get to pump out that sort of set of ideas that they, that they subscribe to. And there is no overarching overseer. Now, I actually think it's worth recognizing the benefits of this. Of course, people are born into all kinds of oppressive arrangements. Mm -hmm. I lived in one and, and, and that is called Saudi Arabia. I considered it oppressive anyway. Now that's not to say everyone who lives there does actually, but you know, that, I personally wouldn't want to live and grow up in a society like that. I think your liberties are too limited. And so you could see why liberalism evolved to sort of destroy these, as they put it, unnatural hierarchies. They're purported natural hierarchies, but they're really not, they're, they're fake, right? In effect, these are, these are people who are claiming authority over us who don't have it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the rebel in me, the, the, the sort of libertarian streak in me wants to say, well, of course, yeah, that's, that's exactly right, right? We should get to define it for ourselves. The problem is, of course, that people psychologically, most people don't seem to be like that. Most people don't want to radically recreate some new form of life. And, and the more experiments in living you have, in a way, the more opportunities there are for, for failure. Um, so this is one of the, the problems of liberalism. And let me, let me actually say one more quick thing before we go on. 
You know, I don't think liberalism is irreligious to its core in the following sense. The earliest liberals, John Locke in particular, was a devout Christian. Mm. But one of his big moves is he says when he's justifying his theory of private property and his theory of the, the way the state should be, he says this is the voice of reason confirmed by inspiration. In other words, pure reason comes first, then we can check the Bible, and it turns out the Bible agrees with what we independently think. Right. This is actually a key move on route to the Enlightenment itself. Again, much of which was enormously beneficial, the advancement of science and so on. But you see this reordering of traditional society from you know, faith, essentially, to pure reason. And if faith conflicts with it, then you do discard it, even if you're a really, really good Christian like John Locke was. Sure. And, you know, this dates back to also Aquinas, who obviously wrote extensively on um, the, the unification or the, the inseparability of faith and, and reason. And it right. was always the idea that um, faith is on the far side of reason. You know, as you said, reason, reason has to um, be informed by or faith needs to be informed by reason. Right. Um, and I think a something that's interesting about well let's just maybe call this modern liberalism now which is almost liberalism hijacked to sell this idea of unlimited freedom right there's no accountability to anything um, but of course our freedom has to be limited and it's also fallible um, yeah. because you know otherwise we often end up becoming kind of imprisoned to ourselves and then that right. can result in um, problematic outcomes for the rest of society. It can disrupt social unity. Yep. So one of yeah, the look. yeah, oh, go, go ahead. I was just going to finish on saying that one of the problems of modern liberalism is the lack of accountability to a, um, an immutable truth of, of good. I agree. And the founding fathers of the United States who were informed directly by John Locke. In fact, when you read the Declaration of Independence, the words come directly from John Locke. It's, mm -hmm. it's almost uh, plagiarized by Thomas Jefferson. You know, it's very clear that Jefferson, like Locke and the rest of the founders, thought that freedom was impossible without virtue. So virtue is a necessary condition so that you use your freedom to be the best version of yourself, right? Unconstrained freedom they thought of as pure, pure evil. It's just degradation. And, and so, you know, George Bernard Shaw says in his great book, Man and Superman, freedom means responsibility. That is why most men dread it, right? It's true. So freedom without responsibility is actually, in a way, the worst form of government. It enables all the vices to pour out of us, right? Absolutely. And freedom is also the, the, the freedom to choose right or wrong. And that's where the responsibility right. lies. Yep. Um, yep. And, and if you don't have... If you don't have a um, a sound kind of understanding of, of right and wrong, or you're being misled, then absolutely. I like that you quote in this paper um, Dostoevsky: "There is nothing more seductive for man than his freedom of conscience, but at the same time, nothing is a greater torture." Right. Exactly. What yep. made you put that in the paper? What, what was the? Well, that's in the context of there's a there's a bigger argument, and there are lots of interlocking arguments in this paper, but. The bigger point was that as religiosity fades, and it doesn't have to be Christianity, it could be any religion, right? Religions tend to bind people together. 
they tend to give a sense of meaning as well as a set of rules, a set of you know, essentially norms that bind people together and, and facilitate cooperation. And so one of the problems with undermining religion or nationalism or some concrete commitment to a lasting set of institutions or achievements or, or people, what you do is you, you get rid of a fundamental source of meaning in people's lives. I mean, you know, the worst thing you could do is go up to a tribe that you find in the Amazon rainforest and just tell them, you know, your gods are dead, you know, <laughs> and just like, here, I've got the proof for it, you know, and they'd be, first of all, surprised to hear that. And secondly, I mean, they wouldn't know even what to make of it. Like if, if they believed it suddenly, I mean, what would they do? <laughs> they would lose any sense of meaning, any sense of why they should retain their customs, why they should have children, why they should go on living and building a civilization. Just to steer it back in the direction of um, immigration, because I think that maybe this is where it, it potentially begins in some ways in terms of moving towards the idea that a globalization or a global liberalism is, is a very bad idea for fertility. Uh, but so you say in the paper that liberalism as a political system tends to reward large corporations that import the low cost or the lowest cost workers they can, uh, even if they come from outside the nation's border. So perhaps you can talk a little bit about policymakers in modern liberal democracies and the, the beneficial or the mutually beneficial relationship that they have with multinationals. Good. I mean, look, there is actually a basis for this in liberalism in the, in the biggest sense of the word liberalism. Again, a commitment to freedom and equality plus state neutrality with respect to any conception of the good. You know, that's, those are the core features of liberalism and have been for hundreds of years. Once you understand that, then you realize, okay, so a state government can't, in a way, sort of prevent a, a corporation or, or even an individual from wanting to, you know, bring in low-skilled labor, for example, to save money, right, to decrease costs. If freedom applies within a country, a lot of liberals think, then it applies across countries too. So it's the freedom of movement, of capital, of people, of institutions. Now, there are liberals who are, at least in principle, opposed to this unlimited freedom of movement of capital and of people. But the, the movement in liberal theory has, has gone in that direction. And it's just to be intellectually consistent, they think. And I don't think they're wrong. You know, so a lot of libertarians, and I have many libertarian friends who I disagree with on this, they think it's obvious that if somebody wants to come to your country to work, there, you know, there's a willing buyer, a willing seller, you know, Google wants to employ them, why would we stop them? You know, and, and, and in some ways, it's like, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense, right? It's a voluntary transaction. This person's going to produce a product at a low wage. But one of the points we make is there are externalities. That is, there are external effects, either positive or negative, on third parties. In the same way that when we think of freedom of trade and the freedom of movement of people and capital is an extension of freedom of trade, according to liberals, you know, a, a common left-wing criticism and a correct one is, well, you may transact with the energy company freely. They give you energy, you give them money, but a negative externality is some form of pollution. And we all recognize, well, okay, third parties then, if they're bearing the cost of pollution, they have a right to say, well, maybe we should have some anti-pollution laws or something. 
but we treat it in many cases, many liberals treat freedom of movement of people, of capital, of, of institutions as just a kind of unlimited set of rights. And, you know, we can't control it. We have no right to control it, right? And interestingly, so, they, they see the, um, the opposite of that as um, a stain on human rights, nationalism, yes. borders. That's right. These things There's that, a, these things that yeah, um, you know, uh, 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 have always been essential towards communities. Essentially, you're just creating one large neighborhood that has many smaller neighborhoods. And once you open up the borders to that suburb, then the neighborhoods start to lose everything that the, in this case, the nation is losing. Yes. So the ultimate externality of mass immigration, both low skilled and high skilled, is a loss of culture or a kind of uniformity of culture. I mean, it's it's fascinating because many progressives, which is a certain form of liberal, right, a kind of maybe extreme left wing version of liberal, many progressive claim to value diversity, right? But one of the things that happens under this global liberalist, this global liberal regime is the destruction of diversity. It's a McDonald's on every corner, whether it's in Beijing or Krakow, and I've been, I've, I've been to both, or Sydney or Melbourne or, yeah. or Los Angeles. That's not diversity, that's uniformity. The uniformity comes with, as we're starting to see now with this, with woke politics, it comes with uh, enormous power that then results in a, a complete lack of um, liberty and autonomy. So, I mean, you want to use the analogy of say the, the multinational petrol company or maybe let's yeah. say coke if, if you were um if you were like old old jim's soda pop corner store beverage company in the, you know back in the right. whatever and he was a small business owner and he made his soda pop out the back and that was his trade he sold to his yep. neighborhood eventually coke comes along and says well you know here's an offer jim he takes it or he doesn't and they, they just end up creating Coke stores all around his business. Eventually, right, you fast forward and you can get to the point where Jim from Jim's Soda Pop had all the traditional freedoms of a liberal, of what we would consider traditional liberalism. But now this beast of liberalism, they're stipulating values they're actually saying, well, we're responsible for creating um, what's morally correct and what's not, or at least we're playing a part in it. Right. So these large corporations that emerge from the liberties that we give them, then not only reflect culture, but produce it, yes. whether it's through Hollywood, through advertising, whatever, right? The, the, the sort of woke culture that you mentioned. Yeah. And this is, this is something that I think is worth highlighting. So I mentioned that you know, one of the reasons economists like trade, and I like it too, Adam Smith does, is, you know, when you allow people to transact, they find people who want to transact with them, right? They make them shoes in exchange for money or software or better products all around. And, and the more we do this, the, the more our living standards are raised. So we, we think like it's really good to respect bilateral exchange. But once you push that on a global scale and you say that's the only thing worth respecting, Right. We don't have some overall conception of civilizational destiny or a comprehensive view that, no, 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 look, we've got enough McDonald's here. We actually want to go a different direction. That's not something 
by definition that a liberal political order can do because they're supposed to remain neutral. But let's take another example. I mean, the McDonald's one is just trivial and ugly, but but there's a much worse version of this. And we, we all saw this during the pandemic. Who benefited most? Well, it was, of course, Amazon and these other large, large corporations. And you might think, well, fine, right? They've got economies of scale. They have their own you know, their own factories, their own assembly lines, their own delivery mechanisms now. They own their own trucks. This is just, they can produce better products at lower costs. We're all better off. We all shop at Amazon. What's the, what's the problem? Mm. But of course, you know, that's to analyze each of these transactions in isolation. When we take the overall picture over the long run, I think we all understand that having one massive, super powerful corporation is extremely dangerous, not only because they can then lobby for laws that give them protections, they can pay workers lower and lower wages. They can, if we're not willing to work for low wages, they can pressure the government to open the borders to even lower wage workers. And then on top of that, they can do things like buy newspapers. So what enabled Jeff Bezos to buy the Washington Post? It was the fortune he made with Amazon. Yeah. What enabled him and others to buy out BuzzFeed because they were failing as journalists? Well, a number of wealthy people who made their money in giant corporations bailed them out to prop up their ideology. So who's suffering from that now? Sure, I buy from Amazon too. Everyone does. But we can both recognize, okay, there's some mutually beneficial trade. And the overall pattern that emerges from this is probably pretty dangerous. What do you think that pattern is? Well, the pattern is, first of all, um, not just the monopolization of companies, which can kind of enslave the workers, so to speak, not literally enslave them, but, you know, give them fewer and fewer benefits for the inputs that they, that they deliver. But again, the encouragement of mass immigration, which you mentioned, but we haven't really talked much about, part of this is just companies want the lowest cost workers, right? Just in general, of course they would want that. Why wouldn't they? But part of it is that you know, once they import those workers, what ends up happening is it often leads to declining social trust. And the faster you do it, and the, the more you do it from countries that either don't share your values, or you do it from countries and from people in those countries who are competing with low-skilled workers in your own country, the more so social strife you're going to get, obviously. It's very hard to see how you can argue against that. Yeah, and I think that the other thing with the lack of social trust with that's happening now, as you argue for in the paper, with liberalism is that there's not a lot of um, a sort of consolidation or, or um, rallying around the same sort of things that nationalism and religion has, right? So they have, they have to create these things. And we've seen, yeah. in, in my opinion, what these things are, are save the planet black lives matter yeah. but what that's done is create it may have it may have slightly unified liberals however i think that it was the motivation to, to for the unity was a combination of fear and a kind of a desire to be a part of the intellectual elite they rally around um hatred for non-liberals and in a way that ends up creating far more uh, a far greater lack of social unity 
Yeah, and there's no way for a liberal order to impose a particular group or way of life as the proper elites, right? So in a traditional society, you'll have the clergy. And of course, they're the elites in the sense that these are the people who, you know, if we're taking Christianity, understand the Bible, study it, promulgate it, you know, basically, they're the court system. Yeah. at least in medieval Europe. They're in effect resolving disputes. Now, I'm not even arguing for or against religion, but just recognizing like, this is a source of order that people recognize and defer to. But in a liberal society, you can have the craziest extremists who you're talking about. And I tend to call them, you know, progressives or regressives or, you know, whatever, there's, there's some word or just the woke because the woke version of progressivism is actually itself pretty anti-liberal. I mean, they actually reject equality under the law, for example. They think some racial groups should have, well, should be more equal than others, so to speak, in Orwell's sense, right? They have a constant grievance politics that they're involved in, trying to get resources from one group to another, whether or not they've earned those resources. And this is a small minority, but they cause a lot of social strife. So you don't, you don't um, see them as being um, significant to the argument in this paper of your definition of liberal? Well, I don't in the sense that in traditional political philosophy, we identify liberalism as having these really general features, right? A commitment to freedom and equality, and then something like neutrality with respect to a comprehensive conception of the good. So the state can't, for example, impose one kind of religion or one way of life. So, and, you know, again, this can be liberating in some ways. So if you're homosexual, you know, in a really traditional society like Iraq or, you know, maybe North Korea, that's beyond traditional Saudi Arabia, you know, probably your life doesn't go that well. Um, certainly you can't express yourself to the fullest extent that you that you can in London. But it also means that we can't impose really any conception of norms other than what is legally permissible on the population. And so since people are norm followers and since people seek meaning, as you said, a really cheap substitute meaning is social justice. It's this extreme version of progressivism where there is a clerisy. It's a decentralized clerisy. It's the Twitterati, it's university professors and it's journalists yeah. as well as Hollywood elites. And these people are, I mean, you and I agree, not worth listening to obviously, but they're very powerful and they have listeners not in virtue of how wise they are or how well-versed they are in principles of political philosophy, but because they've just attained positions of power, they're usually beautiful or smart, you know, actresses or professors or whatever, and they emerge as this cheap version of the nobility. In this paper, you reach the conclusion that liberalism, one of the, its biggest problems is that there's this measurable lowering of fertility rate. So maybe, you know, if the idea of liberalism is actually wrong and redundant, then maybe some of these more radical people that we're talking about are symptomatic of, of the, the end of, of liberalism, or at least the restructuring of it. It's been taken to its full extent, which is um, essentially unfettered freedom of conscience. That's right. And we, uh, in this paper, discussed the late Roman Empire, and many people have, have been speaking of that in the last few years, the kind of decadence that we saw after Rome won, you know, essentially power over 
all of the nearest countries, territories, united its people. And then comes, as, as Juvenal says, the poet, the, the terror of peace. I'll read you a passage that we quoted in the paper. So Juvenal explains what's going on in the late Roman Empire. And he says, now we suffer the ills of a long peace. Worse for us than war, this luxury is stifling us, taking its revenge for an empire won. No single kind of crime or act of lust has been lacking. From the moment we were no longer poor, all vice pours into Rome. And, yes. you know, I like to think of this in two ways. There's the physical vice, and we, of course, see this in our society of permissive sexual norms and this sort of thing, right? The pursuit of pleasure, whether it's bodily pleasure through sex or drugs or video games or any of these activities, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to condemn these things, but I'm just saying that they exist and people can spend their entire lives pursuing these things, you know, and also the intellectual vices. And I think these are much worse, actually. Maybe there's an interaction, but the kind of slovenliness, the kind of lack of mental discipline, right? The lack of respect for the Western tradition, for the ideas that actually built the society we're part of, um, this itself is, is sort of astonishing. And in some ways, Juvenal says it's a natural result of luxury. Once you have the, the sort of time and money and goods and, and, of course, vicious goods that come in, life is an endless series of distractions and pleasures rather than the sense that, well, maybe what's really meaningful is, is God or tribe or tradition or civilization or what's necessary to promote those, family, family before everything else.